Primary Care Knowledge Boost, COVID-19, Episode 12, Death in the Community. everyone. It's nice to be back with you all again. In our first set of episodes um, that we recorded covering important topics that were related to COVID-19, we spoke with Dr Tracy Bell about the safe certification of death service that had been set up in Greater Manchester to try and help with the demand that was predicted in terms of excess deaths. We unfortunately had to take that episode down a few weeks later as the service had evolved so much and the recording was no longer up to date. But during that episode, we covered lots of good information about the changes to legislation with COVID-19 and death. And we wanted to to do an episode all about that given that the service is now winding down at the end of June and responsibility is going back to the GP practices. Yeah it was such a lovely episode it was a shame but everything was evolving quite rapidly yeah. but today we chat to Dr Vera Mehta and Dr Amna Khan about the changes. Dr Khan's the clinical lead for the enabling safe certification of death service in the community in Greater Manchester and she's really well placed to talk us through the changes. So together they took us through each of the steps of the process from verification, completing death certificates and who to refer to the coroner as well as the cremation forms. Yeah, we normally say we hope you enjoy, but more appropriately, perhaps we hope you find the episode useful. Yeah. So um, we always start with introductions. Um, Would you both like to introduce yourself for the listeners today? Uh, I'm Dr. Amna Khan. I'm GP and Associate Clinical Director at Bardock. And I'm Verin Mehta. I'm a GP in Cheadle at Cheadle Medical Practice and PCN Clinical Director for our network and a Clinical Director at Stockport CCG. Yeah, lovely. Welcome to you both. Welcome back, Verin. Thank you. Good to be back. <laughs> um, and this episode today, it's all about managing death in the community at the moment. So could somebody set the scene for us and why we're talking about the subject today? So there's been some change in legislation from pre-COVID to now. So we thought it'd be useful just to do this podcast, just to go through what those changes are and the, how, how that impacts in terms of the process when, when a patient passes away. Um, so we did. We actually did do an episode when the Enabling CF Certification of Death Service was initially set up that we then had to take down because a lot of the stuff had changed with it and it was just evolving so quickly. But at that time, because we did it with Dr Tracy Bell, she mentioned that the expected deaths were thought to be around 28,000 in Greater Manchester. Um, do we know kind of what the reality has been compared to, to that estimated figure? So I think people across Greater Manchester, for example, people are talking in the region of about... Uh, 5,000 excess deaths to what we would be expecting. Across the country, it's difficult to predict. Excess death figures are always difficult to interpret. But we know that there have been a large number of excess deaths to what we would have normally um, imagined at, at this time of year. Thankfully, the level is nowhere near as bad as what we had feared at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. But still, you know, every every excess death is a is a story and a tragedy in itself. Exactly. So now that, that you know we we are moving into the next stage of COVID and we have seen a, a significant reduction in the number of daily deaths that are occurring. It certainly for the for the excess death service in Greater Manchester, it does feel the right time to to stand it down, hopefully permanently, but at least temporarily. And you know, therefore, most areas will be passing that that responsibility back to GP practices. So again, you know, just helping practices to be sure of what that process is now. 
Yeah, exactly. Our next stage was just thinking that now that that service is finishing and that the cares of the patients is moving back to their own GP again, um, it was definitely worthwhile to talk about the the legislation so that we're all doing the right things because that's been a big change since coronavirus. Um, so if we kind of go through the process, starting with verification of death, um, what do any primary care practitioner need to know now about um, about verification of death? Yes, I suppose in terms of the change around that, the, the first bit is what's an expected death? So I think the first thing to say is for unexpected deaths, the process is unchanged as it was pre-COVID. So for practices contacted around a death that's unexpected, um, whereas Bardock in some cases have been going out to verify, the usual process in practice is that you just ask that carer or that relative to call 999 and the police and paramedics would attend. They would verify the death and then it would be referred to the coroner by them. So as before, with unexpected deaths, effectively at this at this early stage, GPs aren't involved. With expected deaths, previously we would have had to have done a consultation within the previous 14 days before we could call that an expected death that we'd be able to do a certification for. The Coronavirus Act of 2020 has changed that so that now um, there's a 28-day period, so you need to have done a consultation within the previous 28 days, and that consultation could be over a video link. So um, what I would say is for those people who you are expecting a death for, who in the past we might have done a home visit for every two weeks, it's perfectly reasonable to organise um, a video consultation in the previous 28 days. And if you've done that, then that means that you can you can class them as expected death in terms of uh, verification purposes. And then at the point of death, for an expected death, it would now be the responsibility of the practice to, to go out and, and verify. I think treat every visit that you're doing as a potential COVID visit and make sure you're wearing appropriate PPE in those cases. Yeah, lovely. And then we know in the um, coronavirus legislation that came out, that it said that the GP no longer needs to see the body after death in order to be able to write a death mm. certificate or go on to do the cremation form. Is that still the same? Yeah, that's correct. So how we've been working in the service, and that might illustrate to you what we mean about when you have to see the body and when you don't. So I'm duty doctor, as I'm concluded for the service. I'm based usually in the office, and we have clinicians that we will deploy. So let's say Dr. A has been to the house to verify the deceased. Me being Dr. B can be at the base review the paperwork and if I'm happy, then do a death certificate. If the person is to be cremated, we can have Dr. C that can do the cremation form. So there's only the first one that verified the death that's actually seen the person after death. I've done the certificate without seeing them. The cremation form can also be done without seeing them after death. And that that's quite an important change because before uh, it was a little bit different. That's a really nice way of putting it. Yeah, it's really helpful that there are three different doctors. Yeah, thank you. So now that that responsibility is being passed back to practices, there is a bit of an opportunity for practices to think about, perhaps on a PCN basis, for example, how you might consider death verification. So, for example, some areas might have a visiting service already or might might be thinking about how they can collaborate on home visits, especially during um, the COVID pandemic. There might be an opportunity such that you can have someone who's in the position, has all the PPE in place, but actually other people who know the patient are, are in a position to do the, de- the death certificate in the creme form. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then, I mean, we've mentioned there about writing the death certificate and referring patients to the coroner. So in terms of referring cases to the coroner, have any criteria changed since pre-COVID? Don't correct me if I'm wrong, since the, the new act, I don't think anything in that has changed regarding referring one to the coroner. So if if somebody passes away um, and they're expected in terms of the fact they've got a 
a, a diagnosis such as a cancer, for example, it's not changed in that if you think that that death may have been contributed to due to occupational reasons, for example, refer those to the coroner in the usual way. The only slight uh, thing I suppose it's worth mentioning is is what the role is of COVID on a death certificate. So in the past, if somebody died of a notifiable type of illness, often we would refer those to the coroner. The coroners are quite happy for COVID to be put on death certificates if you're, you're confident to put that on there. What they would not want on there is possible or suspected COVID. So if you are putting COVID on the death certificate, that's absolutely fine. Um, but just write COVID-19 in under 1A uh, rather than anything that's a, that's ambiguous would be the only advice I'd give. Just to clarify as well, the patient doesn't have to have had a test. With me, I would, based on the information I get, I just sort of judge it on the scenario. It does cause some problems with families sometimes when it comes to registering death because putting COVID on as opposed to a pneumonia or another sort of respiratory tract infection, it has implications on the way the funeral is conducted. But we also have a duty to the funeral directors and anybody that's handling the deceased after death as well. We need to protect them um, as well as bear in mind how, how it might affect the funeral. So it is quite important because otherwise we could be exposing funeral directors at risk where it's not necessary. Mm. And then kind of so summarising the bits that we read in the change of legislation about who can f- complete the death certificate, and you can correct me if I'm wrong and add anything extra in. Um, so it can be any practitioner. It doesn't have to be the patient's usual practitioner. Um, they don't have to have seen the body after death to be able to do it. Um, the person needs to have been seen in the last 28 days now, not 14 days as it was previously. And the consultation can be done face to face or by video, but not by telephone. Um, is there anything else, any other criteria that we've missed there that you're aware of? No, I think that's that's covered the key facts sort of within the the new act. I think the uh, the way that anybody can write the death certificate um, now it doesn't have to be the person's usual uh, medical practitioner. Are there any kind of special criteria that mean that that can happen? I'm assuming it, it has to be that the normal practitioner isn't able to do it and and things like that. It's the it's the doctor that's writing the medical certificate of cause of death that effectively is taking that responsibility. So it's your job to effectively check that that patient was an expected death and that death was reasonably foreseeable to check that they had either a face-to-face or a video consultation in the previous 28 days and who that person was so you need access to the medical record and then effectively check that that death has been verified so as long as you're confident that those three things have happened then you're in a position to complete that medical certificate even if you weren't the doctor who did any of those previous things there are some changes on the what's needed to be written on the certificate, actually, um, which I think I can probably move on to nicely. Um, if I picture the top half of the death certificate, there's a part that says this patient was last seen by me on, and then you just fill in the date. The person filling in that certificate may not have been the doctor that last saw the patient. And if not, you don't write your own name. So where it says last seen by me, what we've been doing is crossing out me, putting a line through me, and putting down, say, I would put Dr. Meta on the 17th of June. Towards the bottom half, where you sign the declaration to say you were the last attending practitioner, you put a line uh, through there and you just put not. And we sign our own names. The doctor that's competing signs their name at the bottom. And you add your GMC number and you print your name. Towards the right of the certificate, there's like a token that, again, that's signed with our name, not the GP that might have seen them last. So the only time, really, I can think where you would include the other doctor's name that saw them in life is towards the top half. A bit difficult without having the certificate in front of me, but... No, that's, yeah, that's nice and clear. I can picture it. I, can, I, I do know what you mean. 
Yeah, thank you. It's important not just to do the certificate, but also the stub, because that's almost your audit trail of, of um, who's, who did what at what yeah. point. So I think that it's really important, I think, for people to, to then make sure that their medical records are as up to date as possible and that people are clearly documenting. Now that it's okay for one of your colleagues to do it, it therefore becomes doubly important when you do that 28 day video or face-to-face consultation, putting in the notes, this is what I would see as the cause of death. So it helps the doctor who might not know the patient as well, um, what you might be thinking. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really important. Uh, I suppose the next change is the way in which the death is registered. Now we've verified the death. You've completed the medical certificate of the cause of death. Now there is a slight change in the way that the death is registered. So in the past, pre-COVID, um, normally you would have issued a paper death certificate. A relative or next of kin would have had to collect it and they would have physically had to take that, taken that down to, to register the death themselves. So there's been a, a change there um, in that, that the informant doesn't themselves have to go, go and register the death. But effectively, we're now electronically communicating that certificate um, and the death can be registered that way. We can then contact the next of kin to inform them that we've done that. And they are then in a position to make a phone appointment with the registrar's office to do the registration part of the death. And yeah, it doesn't need to be done in person as it once was. Yeah, it's nice to summarise what the family need to do as well, because we're not often aware of, of those kind of changes unless you're personally involved. So it is nice to have a bit of an update on what's happening there. Yeah. And Amna, there's certain faith groups where um, quite often we, they would prefer a quicker turnaround for those sorts of um, situations. How have you been managing that within the Bardock service? We've been able to do it quite quickly. So it's Muslims and Jews. They have wanted the, the certificates to be done quite quickly. Once the death has been verified, it'll be mentioned to us that because of our faith, we want it to be done, done quickly. That's okay. So we'll accommodate that where we can, whether it means waking me up, getting up early the next day. We can usually do them, depending on what time of day it is, within a few hours, up to 12 hours sometimes. Uh, And then the process after that is just the same. I'll pass it to my admin team who will email it to the relevant registrar's office and then the family are informed. So I think that's that's one thing that we've recognised. Obviously, you know, generally, so pre-COVID, you know, in terms of handling deaths sensitively, normally one of us would have gone out, verified the death. That also would have been an op- opportunity to, to offer condolences to the family and offer them some support. So I think it is worth thinking about, I suppose, how we handle these deaths as sensitively as possible. So, you know, obviously given that you can now do a lot of this remotely how you kind of liaise with the family and offer them that support over many years you know patients often come back and tell me they remember 15 years ago when you know you supported me when when my my father passed away and you were there in the house so you know it is very strange times at the moment people are finding it really difficult to to manage what happens you know they can't have family members come around and give them a hug like they normally would have done so I think you know it is on us within general practice just to think about how we support people through that so certainly in our practice you know we, we would plan for whichever person knows that family best to try and make contact not just to let them know that the that the death certificate's been been sent across but also offering that that level of support and just um, letting them know that we're here in Greater Manchester, there's a bereavement service that's been that's been launched. So again, that's another opportunity just to give people that that signposting if they need some further support. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I guess the final bit of paperwork that we normally fill in um, or might need to fill in is the cremation form. Do you want to kind of go through what's changed with that with the legislation? What do we need to be aware of now in terms of the cremation forms? 
So if I was completing it on the searcher's behalf, there are certain bits of the form that I have to um, put some additional information down. The difficulty is the form hasn't actually been redesigned. If I'm filling it in and I haven't uh, been out to verify the death, I've put the name and the GMC or the NMC number of the clinician that did verify the death. There's a quite a, a large box in the form where you have to write down the events leading up to death. If you're not the usual GP that knew them, you might have to make some phone calls because you don't have all the records just so you can write comprehensive history really to satisfy that the death was from natural causes or was expected. The main thing really to add is that you didn't see the body after death, include who it was, and you must include their NMC or GMC number. And you, when completing the form, you are not required anymore to go and see the deceased at the funeral home. Well, that's answered pretty much all my questions about it. The only other thing is, do you still need to fill in just part one as that first doctor? Yeah, so um, the GP will do the one form and then it'll be the independent clinician that will review that and sign off the information can go ahead. Brilliant. And you already said at the beginning that it can be a third doctor that could then fill in the cremation form, having not done the other two parts. I'm assuming the same criteria that Viren described there would need to be satisfied, that you're happy that they've been seen within the time frame and that it's expected death and, and all of that to be able to fill in the form. Yeah, so effectively, you just need to know who it was that verified the death and saw the body after death, and who it was that completed the medical certificate of cause of death, the death certificate. And ideally, you need the name and ideally the GMC number of both those doctors to put on the form. Brilliant. And what's happening with pacemakers and things? So yeah, it's still it's still the same as, as before, really. So you have to highlight whether there were any um, sort of hazardous implants left in the deceased. Now, it's important really for the own surgery to be completing that CREM form because they have all the information to safely complete the form and testify to the fact that there aren't any hazardous implants that there, there was no um, surgery that occurred in the last 12 months. There are certain questions that you have to really get right in the prem form. Um, before we ask you your kind of take-home points from today, um, do you think the the Act will stay? Do you think this is here to stay, all the changes? So I, I think as long as um, we can demonstrate that no harm comes as a result of these changes, and that does require all of us to make sure that all those steps are completed. So when you're when you're completing certificates, making sure that you know that those other things have been done and can verify that in the medical records. I think as long as, as long as, yeah, the coronial sort of, um, process is upheld and no untoward incidents occur, then I'd like to think that, that some of these changes can, can continue. But that's down to us, I suppose, making sure that we, that we act, um, responsibly. I think the other thing to note is, you know, if you look at the legislation, when it comes to verification of death, it doesn't actually say that a doctor needs to verify death. So I think in most areas, traditionally, GPs and doctors have always done it. But I think lots of areas are now thinking about, in order to keep kind of transmission and risk down as much as possible, how do we safely think about death verification without having to have clinicians go out and, and do that themselves? So I know some areas, for example, are looking at, actually, could you start to look at your care home staff and do death verification remotely through training. So there's a training need for that. And obviously that's a big change for, for those clinicians. Lots of people are looking at, say, community nursing and district nursing teams and thinking about seeing as they're often looking after people 
all on your gold standard framework and giving end of life drugs, and they're often there at the point of death. How do we make sure that those staff have the confidence to be able to do those verifications? So I think it is an opportunity for us to start thinking about how do we make that system as efficient as possible, but still maintain that duty of care throughout. Thank you. So last question, what would you like listeners uh, to take away from the chat today? Um, So from the 30th of June to the 10th of July, I'm still here as a duty doctor. You have the um, phone numbers and the email addresses in the packs that are being sent out to the surgeries. If there are any queries, even if it's about any of the historical certificates or crem forms that we might have done, we have access to our systems. And obviously, I have this experience for the last three months, and I'm more than happy to assist any surgeries that have any queries about the, the process in this transition phase. Brilliant. Yeah, thank you. Amazing. Viren? So I think in summary, so if you're in Greater Manchester, the Bardock service is coming to an end on the 30th of June. But I think we've just heard from Amna until the 10th of July, that service is, is available in terms of telephone advice or if you need any advice about some of the special notes that have been sent. So do feel free to contact them if you need to. But from the, after the 30th of June, the responsibility for for the death verification and certification process and cremation forms will pass back to general practice. So I think, think now about how you organise your surgery to make sure you're in a position to take that responsibility back. So those patients who are your expected deaths have a process by which they're having a video consultation or a face-to-face assessment every 28 days. When you're doing that consultation, make sure you think about how you document that this is an expected death, that you've had that conversation with the relatives and the family, that um, what you might want to put on the death certificate if it's not that you that ends up doing it so that if that person does sadly pass away uh, the practice is notified you can complete the next steps as quickly as possible so that that death needs to be verified um, but think about in your own area what that it doesn't necessarily need to be a gp and there might be other other clinicians and practitioners that you can bring in to assist you when the death is verified, think about the fact that another doctor may be doing the, the the next forms. So make sure if it's an out of hours doctor, for example, you have a process by which the GMC number of the doctor who does the verification is shared because you may need that further down the line. When you're doing the, um, the, the paperwork, so if you're doing the medical certificate of cause of death, if somebody else has seen the, the person before death and if somebody else has verified the death, make sure you handwrite and amend the form accordingly to bring that in. When you've completed the, the certificate, that can now be shared electronically, but therefore think about how you communicate that to the relatives and what information you give them and how you support them, given that you won't be seeing them perhaps in the normal way. If you then need to do a cremation form, again, that can be done electronically and sent electronically, but think about what changes you need to make to the way that, that form is completed, given that you might not have done the earlier steps. So I think that, that that's a lot of change. I think that's what I'd say. And it's probably worth all of you in your practice sitting down and just thinking about how you're going to make that process as, as slick as possible. Because, you know, we all know that it can be a really stressful time for families and any little bit of stress you can take away just by making that process as seamless as possible it is really helpful. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, really lovely. Yeah, thank you so much for going through this. I think it's really helpful. Thank you. Well, it's a, uh, not the the most positive topic to come back for, but yeah, hopefully that's helpful for people. Very worthwhile. Definitely useful. Yeah, thank you. 
It was really nice to speak to Viren and Amna today and get their perspectives and, and knowledge about managing death in the community during coronavirus. What did you learn, Sarah? Yeah, I, I think it was really interesting to reflect on the changes in the legislation as well as how to provide holistic care really to families that are going through bereavements at the moment. Um, so Viren's suggestions were really, really useful. Definitely, like the the consideration of the little things, like getting people who know the family best to call them about the death certificate being ready and what to do next. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was also useful just to go through the the process in quite a systematic way because it has changed quite a bit. They give the information in such a nice, clear um, and useful manner. Yeah, and sort of that feeling of being prepared, getting your practice prepared and, you know, if things are expected, getting everything ready in terms of what, what the next steps are going to be. Yeah, definitely. Like, again, Viren's suggestion of if you have been the one to to speak to the person you think it's an expected death to record what you think might be the cause of death, because that can be very helpful for the person coming along after you. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about kind of preparation. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks very much to everyone for listening. Um, and we hope you found it useful. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can. You can email us at primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com or uh, tweet us or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at PCKB podcast. And we love hearing from people from there. Thanks to everyone who has retweeted some of our episodes and things. We also have a one minute survey that's really easy to fill out and we send it as a link on the episode description. Um, yep, yeah, and if you're enjoying these episodes, um, then please share, um, tell a friend, let people know that they're out there. Thanks to everyone who's done that already. The word is getting out and it's so lovely to hear from everybody. Yeah, till next time on Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2020. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.